brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Cal State Fullerton has done it. They've gone from 15 and 16, the champions of college baseball. Welcome to the 1,544 Miles to Omaha podcast. Here's a drive, deep right center. Back there, and Chamberlain has won it. A walk-off homer from the freshman Chamberlain, his first of the year. Lifted deep to left field, and Cologne's got a home run. Wow, did that ball carry. Here's your host, Dave Lamb. Welcome into the 1,544 Miles to Omaha podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Dave Lamb. Today's guest is Stu Murray via telephone from all the way out in Massachusetts. Stu is, the, is a staff writer and a scout for Perfect Game USA and is also the host of the On Campus to the Cape podcast that focuses on college baseball and the players that have played in the prestigious Cape Cod League uh, for summer ball. Uh, welcome into the 1544 Miles to Omaha podcast, Stu. Well, thanks, Dave. Uh, appreciate the invite. Absolutely. So for those that aren't familiar with your work on Perfect Game and the podcast, bring us up to speed on your background and how, how you got to be where you are. I know you're retired and, and, and baseball is a passion of yours, but uh, those that haven't sure. read your bio, bring, bring them up to speed. Sure thing. Well, I was in biotech and uh, pharma for 25 years and had the good fortune of retiring uh, three or four years ago and uh, moved uh, my wife and I full-time down here onto the Cape. Uh, I've been a lifelong college baseball fan, but starting in, uh, in 2013, started following the Cape League very, very closely. Of course, most everyone's familiar with that league. It's the presti- most prestigious collegiate uh, wood bat league in the country in the summer. And then um, a couple, three or four years ago, started to get uh, into my own sort of podcast and blending my professional career with college baseball and interviewing D1 head coaches. And my focus really with with those interviews was getting to know the coaches, but more importantly, their philosophies, um, their development strategies, the cultures they're trying to part in their programs, as well as talking with and, and about some of their players. So over the last three years, I've done about pushing 70 or 75 now podcasts, most of which are with D1 head coaches. And uh, in fact, in 2017, I interviewed uh, Coach Vanderhoek for a blog post that I did. So that's a little bit about um, about where I am today. And then uh, back in the spring, I've uh, been good friends with some of the Perfect Game folks, and it made sense for me to cover the Cape Cod League day in and day out for the entire season, which I did this past summer. 
you actually live in Orleans, which is on the eastern the eastern edge of the Cape. But because I would say what Wareham is probably the furthest furthest most west team from Orleans, it's probably about a good hour drive. So you're able to pretty much cover the Cape. Not you know, it's it's not like out here in California where the California Collegiate League you've got the Orange County Riptide and then the San Luis Obispo Blues, which is a good four or five hour drive. So for you, it's 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 a little bit more yeah, manageable. It's, yeah, it's one of the beauties of the Cape League is uh, you know ten teams, like you said, about an hour apart. You can hit all ten teams, and each team has thirty uh, roster spots, so you can manageably cover 300 of the top prospects in the college game. Can't see them all, particularly pitchers, but I got a good look at most position players over the past summer. What makes, what makes the Cape Cod league so special? What is, why is it considered to be the premier wood bat league? How did it evolve to be that's, that's where the top prospects and that's where the the top college baseball players are usually sent. Yeah, great, great question. You know, it's been around for over a century. And in 1963, the NC2A sanctioned the Cape Cod Baseball League. So it's going on almost 60 years now as a formal NC2A supported or at least um, a regulated league. Uh, it was the first to go to Woodbats back in the mid 80s. And, and that was really transformational because then it allowed scouts to come here and see how the best prospects actually performed with wood in their hands, which, of course, is what they want to see for pro ball. So that was transformational in 1985, and then it's just the alumni. I mean, it's a who's who uh, of professional baseball from the Cape League. I think now there are over 300 current uh, MLB players that spent some time on the Cape at one time in their college careers. Uh, and then the other thing that's really kind of special, as we mentioned it earlier, is, is a scout being able to cover uh, so many players in such a manageable uh, geographic area in over 60 days. And so the MLB scouts are here in droves. Uh, most of their top-notch guys come in for at least a week or so. And so players who are recruited to the Cape know that they're going to be seen by uh, more scouts than any other summer league. So taking all that together... Um, it's really a special place for just 60 days. It goes by so quick, um, but it's really heaven on earth for a college baseball fan over that time. For you, why college baseball? Why not? I mean, you're out there in Red Sox country. <laughs> why not? Why not professional baseball? What, what's for you personally? Why? Why is college baseball the draw? Well, I think it's it's stripped of a lot of commercialization. Uh, the players want to be here and hustle down the line. I mean, it's unusual to see someone not hustle all out on every ground ball, particularly here on the Cape when they know scouts are watching. Um, you know, the games here are quick. It's a typical two-and-a-half-hour game. Uh, there's not a whole lot of uh, between-inning promotions or annoying, you know, loudspeaker, uh, uh, you know, announcements. Uh, it's just pure baseball, and it's in front of communities that uh, that really support these local teams. And um, so, I really love the Cape League. And then on the on the national level in the spring, I mean, it's you go to the SEC, you go to the ACC, and the, you know, on the West Coast included, it's top notch baseball. You can be close to the players, you can follow them, and, um, and and do so very inexpensively. So 
taken all together, I, I just prefer the college game. Not that I don't watch pro ball a lot. I do. But in terms of spectating, I, I prefer the college game. When it comes to the Cape League, a lot of people know that it has that, that prestige. But when when it comes to the Cape League, the fields and the facilities aren't these cathedrals to baseball. Sometimes they're 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 high school <laughs> they're, they're high school parks. It's it's not even you know it, it's not even stadiums, if you will. It's a lot of wood bleachers and and things of that nature. Why uh, is it because of the close proximity? It's not necessarily because of the facilities. Not that I'm kicking rocks on the facilities, but it's not because you've got you know these little minor league stadiums that are all scattered out through the Cape. You're you're absolutely right. These are high school or community fields that. Uh you know, are maintained by the, each franchise is really responsible for maintaining their fields. And yes, you're really close to the action. So, I mean, you put your folding chair right by the backstop, the brick wall backstop, and you're 15 feet from, you know, some top-notch collegiate ball players, um, and also the access. So the players, they live in the community with host families. You see them around town. They do clinics in the morning. For, for kids, you know, two-hour clinics, which are very popular. After the game, fans are free to mingle on the field and talk to players and get autographs. So the access to these guys is unparalleled, both during the game as well as uh, outside of the game. And, and it probably doesn't hurt that kids that grow up in that area can go to whichever whichever team that they live closest to, and they're getting instruction from a future Aaron Judge who played at Fresno State, and I'm sure he played on the Cape. I, don't, I haven't followed his career all that closely. But somebody who yes. has that star power now that played college ball, played out on the Cape, and a kid's probably got a baseball signed by him. Absolutely. And those relationships are really important that happen in clinic. I mean, it's the most direct way, in my opinion, to sort of pass on to the younger generation the value of baseball and that these guys are you know, hard workers but approachable and friendly. Um, and I think we, you know, the game of baseball needs more of that, sort of passing on this tradition to the younger generation to ensure that we have the fan base necessary going forward. But, yeah, it's, it's really special, those relationships. And uh, it, it's fun for kids. You know, they, they think these guys are, are, you know, and they know they're going to be future major leaguers, many of them. And so they cherish a signed ball or a signed hat or just playing catch with these guys. What's a typical summer for you before the Cape League starts and then until the players go back to school? It seems like right now the Cape League, is it's already done. It's already had our championship crown, or our champion crowned. But, but what's it for you personally when you're getting geared up for the start of the Cape League season and then throughout and then now that it's over? Sure. Now, great question. So, uh, you know, I follow, obviously, the spring college game very, very closely. And, and the rosters, at least the initial rosters of the Cape League, come out fairly early. Uh, those rosters, in general, are already set for next year. And, you know, they're temporary. But um, And so you're able to see and, and watch the spring season knowing that X, Y, and Z guys are headed to the Cape. So that's a, a jump I get on following those guys and doing some preliminary scouting. Um, and then, you know, I, I travel a fair amount for the spring season and see a lot of these guys in person. And then toward May, I start getting a little bit more serious about the rosters and doing sort of, um, you know, just listing some of the guys that I definitely want to see. Uh, and then once the season starts, which is uh, typically the second week of June, 
during Super Regionals or maybe right when the College World Series starts. It's a 60-day sprint over the summer, uh, and you're playing five, five, usually six times a week, and there are games that start both at 5 p.m. and 7 p.m., and so if I'm lucky, I see two games in a day, um, and then I write a bunch of notes and log them on my computer, and I do it again the next day. So I do that for 60 days. You really get to follow and understand ballplayers when you watch them day in and day out. You know, there are guys who, whose tools are super loud, and you can immediately see their value. There are other guys that really grow on you over a summer when you see them contribute to winning baseball in so many different ways. And that's one of the advantages of being up here all 60 days is you get to really understand guys, talk to their coaches, talk to them, understand their their development goals, what they're trying to achieve. And then once the season uh, closes, like you said, it just did a couple weeks ago, um, then I take a little bit of a break, but uh, soon here I'll be starting my fall ball college baseball podcast. It's a great time to catch up with D1 coaches. So I'll do most of my podcasts in the fall during and after the fall ball gearing up to the next season. Uh, then a couple months off, and before you know it, it's February 15th, and we're at it again. So it's a wonderful cycle. Um, I get a really concentrated look at about six months of college baseball, which is just a dream. So during that 60 days of the Cape League, do you pretty much just kiss your wife on the forehead and say, I'll see you in two months? <laughs> uh, in many ways, yeah. She likes to come to as many games as she can. She, she, she works full time. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a thing where I get to these ballparks at least the first month. I'll get there three hours early because I'm going to watch batting practice in, in I.O. at least for the first month uh, until I get a really good read on these guys. So it's a, you know, I get there at uh, 3.30 for a 7 o'clock game and, and uh, the game ends at 10 o'clock. I write up a little thing, go to bed at midnight and then start over the next day. So it's a, it's a full day and, you know, we wait 300 days uh, for the season to come, and then just seems like a blink of an eye, it's over in 60 days. Right. Well, I know Cal State Fullerton, uh, the past few years, has sent a number of players to the Cape. In 2017, Brett Canine, was, uh, who's now with the Houston Astros AA affiliate, uh, Corpus Christi Hooks, he was just recently uh, brought up. He was with the Wareham Gateman. Andrew Cazada, now with the Colorado Rockies organization, played with the Yarmouth Dennis Red Sox. Last summer, Sahid Valenzuela was recently drafted by the Oakland A's. Uh, he was with the Gateman uh, last summer. Now this past Cape season, two Titans were with the Gateman on, on the on the Gateman squad. Uh, Friday night pitcher Tanner Bybee and cad, catcher Cameron Guangarena, along with Titan closer Michael Weisberg. He played this summer for uh, Whitey Red Sox as well. Uh, it seems like those two teams out there in the Cape, uh, the Red Sox and the Gateman, uh, seem to have a pipeline into that Fullerton program. Is that how most Cape League teams recruit and bring in players because there's a relationship between the college coach and the Cape coach, and they just know, hey, we're going to send you the guys that we want to send you? Or how does how does, how does does the recruiting aspect work? Yeah, great question. It is a network. These, uh, these coaches here on the Cape have collegiate networks uh, of scouts and head coaches and assistant coaches throughout America. And so, you know, they get comfortable with coaches and comfortable, and the coaches get comfortable with some of the Cape League approaches here. So, yeah, there are pipelines. Uh, you know, Scott Pickler, longtime uh, head coach at Cypress JC, uh, was in, uh, inducted into the ABCA Hall of Fame last year. He's the YD head coach. has been there for 20 years. He loves Southern California guys. Um, and Jerry Weinstein, uh, everyone knows Jerry Weinstein in the baseball world. Um, and he, 
he also has great ties down in Southern California and loves those guys. You know, here in Orleans, where I sit, Kelly Nicholson has been the head coach here for, I think, almost 15, 16 years. He's an LMU guy who lives in Southern California. And I think it was 2016, we had Scotty Hurst up here um, for Orleans. Uh, you guys are obviously familiar with him. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a regional thing a lot of times. And, and there are several Southern California coaches uh, that are here over the summer. Speaking of that, you were able to see Cameron Guangarena up there with the Gateman in person for the brief time he was out there for the Cape. Unfortunately, he wasn't out. He started the season there, uh, but he he didn't finish the season. Uh, what did you What did you see out of the Fullerton projected starting catcher? Yeah, well, the first thing you see is his body. I mean, th- this is a he's a man already at a young age. Very very athletic uh, behind the plate. He's really quick. Uh, quick blocking balls, uh, you know, quick on back picks, um, and and he can hit. I mean, it's one of the things that's interesting is watching batting practice with wood in your hands, and oftentimes you can hear the difference between hitters as well as see it. And the ball makes a makes a really different sound off his bat. Uh, so he's got some some juice in the barrel that I think he'll find eventually. Really like him a lot, and it's probably not a surprise that he went to Jerry Weinstein at Wareham who uh, is, is a well-noted uh, catching guru defensively. And uh, I'm sure that uh, Guangarena learned quite a bit in his three or four weeks here under Weinstein in terms of his development as a catcher. I know it's, I know it's a little bit further away because he's going to be a sophomore coming in this season, so his draft year isn't until 2021. Would you, would you be able to project, you know, is he going to be a first-day, second-day kind of a guy? Well, like you said, there's a, there's a lot of baseball ahead. Um, I, I think what's going to put him in that level is is really defensively. If, if he becomes an elite defender uh, over the next year or two and, and hits and, and, and starts to hit with a little bit of power, there's no reason why he can't be a, you know, a top five-round pick, if not higher. I mean, the athleticism is there. Uh, the, like I said, the quickness, the, the uh, barrel awareness already. Uh, there's an awful lot to like for that uh, about that kid, and it's just a matter now of, of improving every year up until that draft day. How common is it? How common is it that a player will only play in the first half of the summer ball league, or will, will arrive late and finish up the season after playing in the summer ball uh, somewhere else? Yeah, it's it's a for pitchers, it's not uncommon as they reach their innings limit. Um, they often will have an arrangement with the team before the summer starts that I'll, I'll give you 20 innings or I'll give you four or five starts. Uh, it's often negotiated with the pitching coach or the head coach at the college level. For position guys, it's, it's a little unusual you know, for, a, for a contract guy. It's a little unusual not to be here for the whole summer, although that happens. Players go home for a variety of reasons. They've got summer school. Uh, they've got personal issues or what have you. Um, but by and large, if you're a contract player and you perform pretty well, you, you're up here for the summer. So unfortunately, you weren't able to see uh, Tanner Bybee or Michael Weisberg, who were, who were out there on the Cape pitching. Uh, did you hear from other writers or scouts uh, what their thoughts that they were actually able to lay eyes on those guys? Um, actually, I, I wasn't. You know, I just published uh, on PG our top 50 prospect list, and um, you know, that means basically projecting uh, the guys that we anticipate going in the top five or six rounds. 
I, I talked to a lot of coaches and, and some other scouts. I didn't hear those guys' names, uh, which doesn't mean that they're not, uh, you know, headed for an MLB, you know, track and potential career. I know Bybee, you know, is very highly thought of and has had his moments. Uh, he's probably been plagued by a little bit of inconsistency and whatnot, but uh, I think he's he's legit from everything I've heard outside of the Cape League. Well, you probably keep uh, on top of all things college baseball, like we covered earlier before, where you know you get ready for the fall ball season and then roll into spring and then kind of keep track of that. I don't know how much uh, you've been keeping track of out here on the West Coast. Uh, lots of lots of turnover, especially with the Titan baseball assistant coaches. Uh, essentially, all all brand new this season with Sergio Brown coming back to the program from Arizona. Dan Rickaball. Uh, is back as the pitching coach. Uh, he spent some time at uh, Long Beach State along within the minors. Andy Jenkins, you probably recognize that name, uh, from Oregon State. He's going to be the volunteer assistant for the Titans. And then uh, they're also getting a, a, an undergraduate coaching assistant, Tyler Pill, who advanced all the way to the majors playing for the New York Mets. But he's chosen to finish up his degree at Fullerton, and he's going to assist the Titans while earning his degree. Do you have any thoughts on the assistant coaches' changes that took place at Cal State Fullerton? It's well, Vanderhoek's still well, the head man, but everybody else is pretty much brand new. Yeah, well, I I, I think he you know Hook did a tremendous job with these hires. Um, you know, I mean, the, the pitching side is one that's been a concern. I think this will be Hook's fifth pitching coach since he arrived in 2012. So I, I know in talking with him a couple of years ago, he was hoping that Steve Rousey was going to be um, a stabilizing factor. And for whatever reason, I don't think that happened. Um, but Dan Rickaball, certainly, as you guys know, knows Southern California baseball. Um, he's had a really good track record at LMU as well as Long Beach State in developing pitchers. I actually uh, texted with uh, one of the former players here on the Cape who, who pitched for him at Long Beach State last year, had a lot of good things to say about Rickaball. Um, so I think that's a rock solid hire. Uh, I think Brown is really interesting. You know, what he's going to bring is aggressive recruiting. His classes at Arizona have always been top notch. Uh, I think he's a tireless worker on the recruiting trail. And I, I think that could be perhaps even more of a boost for Fullerton and, and Vanderhoek is to try to, you know, step up perhaps and compete with some of those, uh, you know, other big schools for the blue chip athlete, the blue chip player, um, which I think can really get, be a boost for Hook here playing into the next generation. Any thoughts on Andy Jenkins? I'm, I'm sure he had a very, very successful career as a player for Oregon State. Did he ever play out there on the Cape? Uh, I, I don't know uh, that for a fact. But what he's going to bring is the Pat Casey way. And, uh, of course, everyone knows how successful Oregon State has been in the last two decades under Pat Casey. Um, and I think it's, it's great to have a fresh perspective uh, you know, that Hook can actually look for how some other people are doing things. I think one of the sort of the hallmarks of the Fullerton way is hiring Fullerton guys. And certainly you can't argue with that track record. It's been unbelievably successful and consistent. Um, but I think it's also good to bring in fresh perspectives and, and learn how other people are being successful. And I think he's going to bring that to, uh, to Fullerton. And you know, all things considered, I, I think it was really a, a, a slam dunk, close to a slam dunk anyway, these hires for Vanderhoek and what's going to be a really an important year for the program in 2020. 
What are your thoughts on the volunteer assistant position? We just kind of talked a little bit about uh, Andy Jenkins. He actually is going from a paid assistant position at Corvette up in Corvallis and is now moving down to Southern California and is taking that volunteer assistant position. With the recent vote with the NCAA not to offer a third paid decision, uh, third paid assistant coach as an option for college baseball programs, what's your what, what's your thought on, on on that in general? I kind of have an idea, but I wanted to I wanted to have have you verbalize it. Sure, I, I'm just baffled by that vote. I mean, essentially, what these athletic directors were asked to vote is: Do you approve of anyone having the ability to hire a third assistant? You know, said another way. A yes vote means you don't have to do anything differently than you're already doing. You're not obligated to do anything. But will you allow the opportunity for other coaches, young coaches trying to pave their way for a paid job? And the fact that that was voted down um, is just baffling to me. And I I think, unfortunately, it, it probably says something about how baseball programs stack up in an athletic director's mind. Uh, it's not a revenue generator typically in most places. And um, therefore, it's, it's not going to get the, the, the resources that a football or a basketball program are going to have. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just very disappointed for the coaches. I mean, now that uh, a volunteer assistant, I mean, how they make their living is, is working camps. And what that means is over the summer, you're working camps, but also you're working camps during the season in the evenings. I have some good friends who are volunteer assistants and uh, you know, after a full day with the, their coaching duties, then from 6 to 9 p.m. at night, they'll be running youth camps. And that just is a tremendous load on someone day after day in order to try to make ends meet. You know, they typically are living in very Spartan conditions, either, you know, in the basement of the head coach or what have you. And, uh, you know, when you're talking 50K or something to support another coach, it's just really unfortunate that the athletic directors in general couldn't find a way to vote that through. And, and on, on a personal opinion of mine is, you know, I, I get it. These guys are, are out there. They like to grind. But I think that the real victims in this one was uh, the young guys in, that, that choose either baseball or to have a family. And they can't really have both because you've got to have health insurance, which obviously volunteer assistant doesn't provide. And working those extensive hours and living in uh, you know, not not a family. You know, a, a, a three bedroom home that is conducive to having a family. It's 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 a lot of the, the the family members are the ones that suffer the most. These guys, especially being in the position of uh, of wanting to be a volunteer assistant. I mean, they've ridden on bus leagues. They've they've lived on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches all their life. So they they're okay with it. But if they want to have a family, or if they want to, you know, mature a little bit more than just being a, a college baseball player, it, it, it really kind of takes its toll on them, I would say. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's difficult to financially to raise a family, but also just the world of a baseball coach. You're on the road either playing or recruiting for so much of the year. It's difficult from that standpoint as well. And, uh, and so it, it, the other thing that, that unfortunately will hold these volunteers back is they're not allowed to recruit on the road as a volunteer. So they can't go out and represent the university outside of the uh, the campus and so you know that's that's a huge skill and network that is valued when someone is looking to hire a full-time assistant and unfortunately these volunteer guys aren't getting that experience sticking with the general opinions on just college baseball in general 
why do you think it's that football and basketball are so popular? Yes, they are those those re- those revenue generating sports, but it's not like the NFL and the NBA don't make a whole lot of money, and the Major League Baseball Major League Baseball doesn't make a lot of money. Why do you think there's that disparity when it comes to the professional leagues are highly popular, but college baseball kind of pales in comparison to the college football and the and the college basketball world? Well, I think there's a couple of factors. One is just exposure. Uh, you know, this uh, weekend, of course, you had the start of college football, and I looked at the TV log. You know, I think there are 25 or 30 games I can watch during the course of a day, um, and that's that's D1, even one AA or FCS, whatever they call it. Those guys are on television all the time, and it, it's the same thing with basketball. I mean, the exposure is just unparalleled. So I think that's one thing, and, and of course, with exposure comes – ad revenue and and uh, significant income for the conferences and the universities i think the other thing is you know college baseball after high school a, a top player has a choice they can go pro or they can go college and although the trend is very favorable for more guys choosing to go to college than uh, than enter the mlb draft or sign um still you're you're skimming off some of the very best, mostly pitchers, some of the very best high school pitchers, and they never get to college. So, you know, I, I would say those two reasons um, probably are among the top ones as to why the game isn't as popular and, and widespread in coverage as it could be. Um, I think certainly the SEC network, and now you have the ACC network that just came on board last week, that's going to help immensely for those two conferences. Uh, you know, the Pac-12 network, I think, unfortunately, has a lot of shortcomings and is not giving that conference the exposure they need or deserve. But, uh, you know, in the ACC and the SEC, you look at the budgets that those teams now have, those baseball teams now have by virtue of the football programs. It's insane. And it, it's it, another challenge for someone like Fullerton State without football, without a TV contract to compete with those main schools that are now just rolling in cash and investing those back into their facilities. I think I read somewhere that, I mean, we all know that uh, Mississippi State just opened up the Taj Mahal to college baseball with the new Duty Noble Field down there. And I think the Florida Gators are investing uh, $50 million, not one five, but $5-0 million into a baseball complex down there. And it just seems like it's there's... It seems like college baseball is catching up, but it seems like the haves and the haves nots, there's this arms race where it seems like some of the smaller schools, and I'm not out here on the West Coast crying poor mouth, but it just seems like just with that injection of that football money or that TV revenue, that the haves are going to have a whole lot more and some of the other programs uh, are going to be left wanting and and picking up the scraps. I could not agree with you more, Dave. Uh, Yeah. Uh, here on the East Coast, and I've lived uh, a couple of springs ago, I was down in South Carolina for the college baseball season. Very familiar with the SEC and ACC and their venues, been to most of those ballparks. And most of them are just flat spectacular. Yeah, you're talking about five, six, uh, ten, even 12,000 seat stadiums that they will fill on a weekend. And uh, it, it, it is an event, and it is fan-friendly and an awful lot of fun. Um, you know, unfortunately, you, you look at the West Coast and the Big West in particular, uh, you know, th- those teams are swimming upstream now against a stronger current. Just the, the revenue disparity is such that it, it's just more and more challenging to compete on a national level with 
ACC and SEC uh, mainly, as well as the Pac-12 and the Big 12. Piggybacking on top of that, of course, out here on the West Coast, and if there is a West Coast bias, we probably have it. A couple of years ago when we were seeing the, the NCAA regional sites announced, I want to say it was two, three years ago, th- there was, I think the furthest West it went was maybe, I want to say like Lubbock. And then the furthest north it went was, I want to say, uh, I think it was like UVA. It just mm-hmm. seemed like it was this bubble in the southeast, and there was nothing on the west, and there was nothing in the Midwest or anything like that. And, of course, there was a lot of griping, and, of course, there were some nasty tweets every time that there was a rain delay. And it was like, oh, it's beautiful and 72 out here in Southern California. You know, why couldn't we have had yep. a regional out here? It just seems like, and I don't know if it's because I'm in the the West Coast bubble, but it always seems like the folks in Indianapolis just tend to gravitate towards that SEC, ACC, whether it's because they have the money and they have the facilities or I, I, we, we can't wrap our head around it. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, a, I'm a West Coast guy. I grew up in the Bay Area and uh, grew up with Pac-10, actually Pac-8 way back when, uh, sports. And, and I'm you know, the, the West Coast does more with less than any other country or any other conference in the country, particularly like the Big West. They do more with less than anybody. And it's really, really impressive. Um, I think you got other factors. The exposure certainly lends to bias. I think the time difference lends to bias, um, and as well as just the facilities. I mean, you, it, for these regionals are actually money makers for the NC2A. And, uh, you know, they've got just more choices of top flight venues where they can pack in more people out in the SEC and the ACC than they can, say, in the Pac-12 or, or the Big West. Well, sticking with the Big West, and, you know, I don't want to take up all your, your whole day, uh, and I know it's extremely early. I know the Cape League just ended, and classes for Cal State Fullerton and out here on the West Coast probably just started, I think, yesterday. So it's going to be super, super, super early. But what are you looking forward to going into the fall ball season? And what do you kind of look for when it comes to, especially out here on the West Coast? You can include some of that Pac-12, Pac-11, I guess, because uh, Colorado doesn't have a baseball team. Uh, What what are you looking for when it comes to West Coast baseball coming into the 2020 season? Well, I think it's going to be a fascinating Big West season for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously... For Fullerton, it's bouncing back after uh, you're missing a regional for the first time in 27 years. You've got new assistant coaches. Uh, you, you have probably a little bit of pressure on, on Rick Vanderhoek for the first time. And so how do they respond? Uh, you've got new coaches. I think Long Beach State's going to be very interesting with Eric Valenzuela out of St. Mary's. He's highly regarded. He's also a an aggressive recruiter. I mean, built St. Mary's from nothing into something very, very quickly. So you're going to see some recruiting wars, I'm sure, between Sergio Brown and and Eric Valenzuela. That'll be interesting. You know, obviously someone you're very familiar with, Dave Serrano, now at Northridge. Uh, He knows Southern Cal baseball as well as anybody, including the Fullerton way. I would expect that uh, Northridge is going to take a a tick up. Uh, You know, UCSB, it was interesting uh, two years ago. um, You know, Andrew Checkets let his assistant staff go and hired a couple of superstar assistants and Donegal Fergus and, and Matt Fontino, they, of course, responded with a great year last year. So I think that's a formidable program going forward. Uh, ben Orloff, I think, is, is really a bright young guy. I think he's got success written all over him. Uh, so UCI is going to be really interesting to watch. 
So it, it's it's fascinating. A lot of different storylines in the Big West. In terms of players, uh, a pitcher that I was really, really high on this year is Trenton Denholm out of uh, UCI. He was just sensational. He'll be the Friday guy for UCI. Um, you've got guys that, you know, Cal Pauly, they had uh, – is Taylor Dollard. I know scouts loved him. He's likely going to be the Friday guy for them. Their center fielder, Bradley Beasley, is really, really a good athlete. Uh, and so there's there's a lot of talent that, that's coming back under uh, different coaching staffs and whatnot. So it's going to be a lot of fun to watch that race this uh, this coming spring. Indeed. Uh, we're, we're, we're excited out here, and the Fullerton faithful are excited. Uh, I, I would agree with you, and I think a lot of the other fans would agree with you, that I think the assistant coaching hires that Vanderhoek put together was an absolute home run. And I think the, the player improvement, not just in the Cape, but uh, some of the other leagues, whether it be the Northwoods or the West Coast League, uh, some of those other players really made some, some giant steps forward in the summer that uh, I think the, uh, the outlook and the, uh, the positivity has rebounded from the negativity of, of, and the disappointment of, of missing, that, uh, miss, missing the regional for the first time in, in uh, I would say, a generation or two. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was quite a bit of shock to the system. Uh, well, I, I also think it's, it's really an important season 2020 for the conference. Um, you, you look at historically, it's been a conference with an RPI in the you know, six, seven, eight range. The last two years, the conference RPI has fallen to 14. Um, and so it's, it's, you sort of wonder, uh, is this a sign of the times and, and the challenges of Big West baseball without all the revenue and exposure? Uh, or is this a blip that's going to turn around and, and uh, the Big West will have its annual College World Series uh, participant in, in, in some uh, regional teams. So it's, I think the conference is at a crossroads, and to a lesser extent, but I think Fullerton is going to be fascinating to watch Hook and, and the, those guys in, in 2020. I just saw your schedule, uh, non-conference schedule that's been released, and you know it's typical for what Fullerton does, just a brutal and highly entertaining uh, non-conference schedule that uh, the Titan fans will be able to watch. Um, and I think, you know, it, it, he's done that pretty much every year. And uh, that that method has been very, very successful for Fullerton over the years, that they challenge themselves early. They learn about their players early. They then customize development plans, in-season development plans, and they're playing their best baseball at the end of the year. That didn't happen last year. So it'll be interesting to see in 2020 if, indeed, they really start to surge in the end of April and into May. You're absolutely right in, in that, uh, just to catch the folks up that that haven't seen that unofficial schedule released, but uh, traveling up to Stanford for that, that annual, it seems like we, we play Stanford all the time, uh, whether it be in the regional or, you know, to open up the season, but we're going to be up in Palo Alto. Uh, we'll return home and uh, probably, I believe, host uh, Tulane, uh, also going to be hosting Texas A&M. And then we'll also be traveling out to Austin to take on the University of Texas. And, and you know, there's that connection with the Augie Garrido is the common thread between those two programs, plus the history and the tradition of both of these programs. And then uh, I believe we have Xavier is going to be coming uh-huh. into Goodwin Field. So it's, uh, uh, I mean, it's kind of a murderer's row of, of, of high, high RPI teams that the Titans are going to have to face early on to really, really find out what they're made of. 
Well, yeah, that's really fascinating. And, and a lot of top prospects from those teams. Of course, Stanford is always loaded. You know, Texas, uh, David Pierce, General Guard is a really good coach. They had a down year. They missed the Big 12 tournament last year. So they're in a big bounce back mode. Uh, they've got some pitchers out here that I was really impressed with. Texas A&M is also in a bounce back mode. I mean, they didn't hit at all. Their, their hitting coach now is the head coach at Nebraska. They've got a new hitting coach there, and I wouldn't be a bit surprised if those bats come alive. Uh, Xavier, I'll tell you, the, one of the most intriguing prospects I saw there on the Cape is a kid named Aubrey Major. He's an outfielder for Xavier, uh, about 6'6", 205, and tooled out. Um, and if you guys get Xavier at Fullerton, he's, he's worth the price of admission just to watch that kid and, and what he could be. And, of course, UCLA, what can you say? You know, I think 10 straight weeks, they were number one in the country last year. Uh, they ran into the buzzsaw that everyone realized at the end of the year in Michigan. Um, but they're going to be formidable again with, you know, Matt McClain back. Garrett Mitchell's going to be one of the top outfield prospects in the country. Uh, Noah Cardenas behind the plate. So that's a fantastic schedule. And, uh, boy, I, I'll tell you, if, if you're in Southern California, you got to make sure you hit Goodwin Field because there's going to be some great baseball there. Yeah, and some Titan connections with uh, the UCLA program, not just being on the schedule, but Noah Cardenas is the younger brother of Ruben Cardenas, who is now yep. uh, who, who is now playing in the Tampa Bay Rays. He was recently traded. And then Matt McClain was a teammate of uh, Bybee and Guancarena out there at uh, for the Gatemen. So there's there's a lot of common common threads. And then obviously McClain, being an Orange County guy, uh, grew up in Irvine. One of the things that's interesting about that UCLA is that normally we'll take we'll play uh, Fullerton will play a, a home and away midweek game with UCLA, but what's interesting is is we actually have a uh, two games at uh, Jackie Robinson and then one game during a weekend back at Goodwin and then a midweek. So we're actually going to have four games against UCLA, two there and then two. Two at uh, at Goodwin, even though they're all going to be non-conference, you will still get that that weekend starter, uh, weekend rotation feel to it, where you're not just playing Johnny Allstaff on a Wednesday or a Tuesday night. Oh, that that's going to be a premier series. I mean, you guys obviously Stanford every year to open the year is something else, but now you're facing UCLA in a weekend, sort of a road home road. It sounds like weekend arrangement, which will be so much fun for the fans. And I'll I'll tell you when when. West Coast baseball is good. It is very, very good. Of course, you guys know 2017 when you had the Long Beach State Series. Um, that was, I mean, I talked to, to Hook at, you know, after that, and that was about as good as it gets for West Coast baseball environment. And, of course, it was a seesaw battle. But uh, I'll tell you, with the great weather and, and the unique style of West Coast baseball, you know, when it's good, it is very good. Couldn't agree more. Stu, Outstanding opportunity. I really, really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be able to uh, to talk about uh, college baseball in general with a little bit more of a Fullerton slant. Uh, probably don't get to do that very often, so I definitely appreciate you taking the time out and doing that for us. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, really enjoyed it and uh, love what you guys do for uh, Fullerton State baseball out there and West Coast baseball in general. And you know I'll be watching very closely next spring. Balls, two strikes, two outs, top of the ninth, three to one. Fullerton State leading Texas in the championship game of the College World Series. Here it is. Popped in the air, short left field. In comes Fisher, calling. The Titans of Cal State Fullerton are the champions of college.
college baseball. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.